Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Stephen Pimper, host of the Public Policy Channel. And today we are joined by Deepak Bhargava and Stephanie Luce, who are the authors of Practical Radicals, Seven Strategies to Change the World, New from the New Press. Uh, Stephanie, Deepak, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us today. Great to be here. Thank you. Uh, so I wonder if we might start off by asking each of you to uh, introduce yourselves, tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do and how you came to work together on this project. Uh, Stephanie, would you like to kick us off? Sure. Yeah, I am a professor at the City University of New York at the School of Labor and Urban Studies. I've been working within the labor movement, uh, both in my teaching and research and my own activism uh, for many decades, and also have experience in other kinds of uh, movement work, electoral work, and um, you know, grassroots organizing type uh, or t- type work. Um, but I've been doing uh, teaching at the the school for a number of years. And uh, Deepak arrived at CUNY a number of years ago and suggested this exciting project. So I'm, I'll pass it to him to explain. Thanks for having us, Stephen. Uh, my name is Deepak Bhargava. I'm uh, currently teaching at the City of, of University of New York with Stephanie. But really, I've been a activist movement leader for about 30 years on a whole range of different social justice movements. And after I left my last job um, running Community Change, which is a national support center for community organizing groups around the country, um, I ended up as kind of a uh, practitioner scholar at uh, at CUNY, and um, I've been really fascinated by the question of how those of us who want to change the world get better at doing so, and um, I approached Stephanie to go on a little adventure with me to figure out how to do that. Terrific. Um, and I feel like I should shout out as a CUNY alum to, to have CUNY all throughout the house. Um, so um, in the book, you write about a broad range of movement successes, not exclusively successes, but the focus here is on successes and how to achieve them. And you discuss seven strategies you identify for affecting transformational change. Um, those are, for those keeping score at home, base building, disruptive movements, narrative shift, electoral change, the inside-outside campaign, the momentum model, and collective care. And you also identify six forms of power and talk about the ways in which particular kinds of strategy might be most effectively achieved using particular forms of power. And those six forms of power are ideological, political, economic, military, solidarity, and disruptive. So I wonder if we might start with with you, Stephanie. We're not in in the time we have available to us. We're not going to be able to work through all of those strategies, which is additional incentives for folks to go out and get the book. But why don't we start with you, Stephanie, and maybe talk to us a little bit about base building. And if we could, let's go from the general to the specific. Tell a little us a little bit about what you think. What is base building? First of all, what are the the circumstances under which generally it is most likely to be effective? and then talk a little bit about the cases that you focus on in the book or a case that you focus on in the book. 
Yeah, sure. So base building is really the fundamental uh, strategy that progressive activists have used over time. And that's based on our ability to work with each other based on our numbers and sticking together. So that is something that you can do in the workplace. You can do it in your neighborhoods. You can do as a community activist. And it's really saying that's where our power comes as underdogs in a fight is in our numbers. We are the majority usually in the in the fights that we're fighting. So uh, it's the most common form of organization that people probably think of when they think of uh, collective change or social movements is through these kinds of labor unions or community organizations. And we emphasize that they really start with this notion of solidarity power. And that's the, the power, again, that comes from sticking together. Um, in the book, we profile two kinds of uh, two uh, organizations. We talk about Make the Road New York, which is uh, based here. They they have different um, organizations, but you know, mostly in New York, we talk about immigrant, low wage immigrant workers working together to win um, gains for the community, including um, access to funds during the pandemic. And then we profile the St. Paul Federation of Educators uh, that really built their union. They already had a union that existed, but they had to intensify it by, you know, getting more power by coming together and really reactivating their membership. A lot of the membership was disinterested or disconnected from the union, and they really got in and and rebuilt the union from scratch, uh, making it a a union that was effective, not just for the teachers and the paraeducators, but also the students and the parents and the community as well. Excellent. So Deepak, why don't we turn to you and maybe you can talk to us a little bit about uh, disruptive movements. Yeah. So I think one place to start on this is that people assume that in any system in which there are oppressors and oppressed, that the oppressed kind of the oppressors hold all the cards, they hold all the power in the situation. But one of the real insights we came to um, here, and this is building on a ton of, of research and scholarship, including by Francis Fox Piven, who um, played a real role with both of us uh, in mentoring and supporting us, is that oppressed people always have power, even if they're in really, really tough conditions, that any system requires um, the participation, in some sense, the cooperation of oppressed people to function, and that by withdrawing that um, consent and that cooperation, oppressed people can force a major, major change in how a society functions. So uh, this is always present at some level, but some groups have more of this possible power than others by virtue of the roles they play in the economy um, or because there's kind of a shift in technology in society um, or something else. We uh, look in the book at a whole variety of examples of this. The most classic classic example is the strike, the workplace strike, where workers um, stop production for a sustained period of time, um, and in doing so, force owners of businesses to make concessions of some kind. So we look at the Flint sit-down strike, but there are multiple, multiple examples throughout history of this. Interestingly, though, this disruptive power is not only can be used beyond the workplace. So we look at, for example, systems of racism and how um, in the 1960s, through the use of boycotts, like the iconic Birmingham uh, campaign to bring down segregation, or the freedom rides, that systems of white supremacy can actually be um, stopped for a time. And that in so doing, you can create a crisis 
a moral crisis, a political crisis, an economic crisis that forces a new bargain to emerge at the end of the day. Um, and then the kind of key case study we use in the book is the welfare rights movement, a really underappreciated um, movement led by low-income African-American women for the most part, that really forced a, a total um, remaking of how cash assistance to the poorest people in society was done. And they did this by disrupting the fundamental ways in which the welfare system operated at welfare offices day after day, week after week. So disruption, we argue in the book, is also a tool that is arguably not being used enough, that there's too much reliance sometimes on a protest or the use of social media to share an idea. And this is one of the core strategies we think needs to be recovered in our own times. Um, I'm glad I'm glad you landed there because it's it's I I sometimes it's it's I know I struggle in talking with students about that 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 protest is not necessarily disruptive and all disruptive action is not necessarily using the power that you have in that you mentioned Francis Fox Bibb and what she calls an interdependent relationship, right? That that someone is dependent on you, whatever role you're playing in society, even if it's to behave and not cause trouble, right? So can you say just a little bit more about sort of how to think strategically about how you use that power? Yeah. Um, one of the things, insights we had here was that um, disruption, the stopping of a system that really creates an existential threat to the people who benefit in a system may not always be noisy. You know, we think of disruption and protest as synonymous, but one of the classic cases in American history is what W.E.B. Du Bois called the general strike of enslaved people. So thousands and thousands of people who were enslaved fled plantations to, fled the, uh, to flee the um, yoke of slavery. And in doing so, they helped to bring down the system. And so you can have a protest, on the other hand, that's very noisy, very boisterous, but business goes on just as it had before, whether it's sexism or racism or exploitation of workers, the protest doesn't actually stop that system for functioning. So this distinction between protest, which may be noisy, and disruption, which may or may not involve kind of flashy disruption is a really critical one for, for organizers to understand. Terrific. Um, so Stephanie, let's go back to you. Um, talk to us a little bit, if you would, uh, about narrative shift as a strategy and what, what the heck that is and what does that look like? Yeah, and it's a great follow-up to that last conversation about disruption because when we think about um, protests, sometimes what they're not—they're not stopping the system, but they may still have a function in changing how people think about an idea or what they see in the news or how they begin to make sense of things. And so, narrative shift uh, work is—we're talking about the ways in which organizers help people make sense of their lives, of their histories, of their identities, and it's not about you know coming out of thin air with, you know, just something made up. It's tapping into people's real experiences and feelings about who they are. So for example, after the 2008 recession, um, there were a lot of stories out there about who caused that recession. Was it the fault of um, the homeowners that didn't have enough money for a mortgage? Was it the fault of public sector workers that taxed the state uh, pension system? You know, these were stories conservatives were telling to make sense of the, the crash. Um, but what some organizers did is really seize the moment to say, you know, we are in debt. We are, we did it. We are doing things right. We are participating in the system. It's, it's a structural crisis of capitalism. It's a structural crisis of the banks and of Wall Street. It's bad policy decisions. 
Um, and we are the 99%. We are the not. We are not the 1% that is responsible for this uh, crisis. So what that movement was was Occupy Wall Street, and that's a, a case that we talk about in the book. It's an example of um, large-scale protest that didn't shut down Wall Street. It didn't stop the banks from making money, but it began to help people make sense of the the uh, crisis of the recession and tell themselves, uh, you know, understand the history different and understand their own agency, and to say we. Are actually have power and we're you know, we're asserting our rights to change this situation. Um, that movement didn't result in immediate change to the system, although it did eventually uh, spur a lot of other movements around counseling debt and Bernie Sanders and so forth. Um, but the strategy here that we talk about is the strategy of narrative shift, which is used in other movements like the marriage equality movement, um, like the dreamers movement, which is about trying to really shift the common sense in society and get people to understand perhaps who are the villains that caused that pro um, process and who are the heroes of the story, who can actually make change and how they are part of that movement to make change. Is there a, a, I don't know what to call it, a to-do list, a checklist? If I if I want to change the way that people think and talk about an issue that is near and dear to my heart, are there some general principles that I should be thinking about, about how to, to get that to happen? Well, I mean, some of it is about... Um you know, just the strategies of good organizing, which is to really listen. And when we um, teach people to organize, we talk about the idea that you have two ears and one mouth and you should use that in that proportion. <laughs> so really uh, it's a deep listening to what where the culture is at and what people are feeling and not just force feeding your ideas on them through a glossy commercial or something like that. Um, it's also trying to um, really get at, you know, to hold true to some values. So you're not just trying to tell a story that will sell, like that will have popularity, but tap into the core values of a campaign or uh, the, the organization that you're working with. And again, trying to find the root causes um, of the of a crisis, like what is the actual crisis going on here? You know, like people might think now there's a lot of focus on whether it's crime or immigration or what have you, you know, really thinking about the root causes there are going back to things around, you know, larger economic changes and globalization and, and those kinds of questions and having the spaces for people to really um, tap into those bigger stories. Um, I think is part of what the narrative shift work is doing. And then also really lifting up culture as a, a piece of this, which is understanding sometimes organizers want to jump over that fact, but people make sense of the world also through music, through story, um, through dance, through other forms of, of shared culture activity. So this is, I think it, it well, you tell me if, if it's fair to say that this is, uh, this is less about data and facts and evidence and arguments than it is about, as you said, storytelling and, and sort of building ways for people to fit themselves into a larger narrative. Yeah, in the sense that I think we know now that people aren't just going to hear a bunch of statistics and change their mind. Um, maybe that works for some academics, but it doesn't work for most people that they are connecting on an emotional level um, to their real experiences. And um, and that's, yeah, exactly right. Um, so back to you, Deepak. Why don't you, if you would, talk to us, please, about a collective care, which I think is, is of all of the strategies that you uh, discuss in the book, the one that is arguably, maybe not even arguably, most novel, not something that we usually find in people's lists of, of strategies for, for movement change. 
we we initially started Stephen with six strategies to change the world <laughs> and we added collective care after being in dialogue with our students and movement practitioners and and really came to believe that it is tremendously neglected um that it is foundational to the success of every movement but that it is not discussed explicitly enough um we talk about as we said earlier kind of the the protest that garners the headlines, but not so much all of the behind the scenes work that goes into making people feel um, safe, able to take big risks, um, able to take public action. So for example, during the COVID pandemic, there was a lot of attention again to uh, mutual aid as a form of how people relate to each other and support each other in a time of crisis. But what we did in the book is we tried to look at, at care from the perspective of when is it actually strategic in changing systems and society? Because we all do care all the time. We care for our family members, our neighbors, and that may not and usually does not result in big changes in huge systems like, like racism or capitalism or sexism. However, there are times when collective care combined with some of the other strategies can really produce tectonic shifts in how society is, is arranged. So the example we do a deep dive on in the book is the AIDS crisis. And most people think when they think of activism and AIDS, they think of ACT UP, rightly, incredibly important group. But ACT UP did not emerge until 1987. And the AIDS crisis began in 1981. So the usual story is, well, not much happened in that period, and then ACT UP kind of burst on the scene. What we discovered, actually, is that the incredible efforts of community support and care that were built through organizations like the Gay Men's Health Crisis all over the country built a broad and wide constituency, helped to change queer people's sense of their own um, agency, of their identity, of their right to being treated differently by government, um, that the existence of this kind of care network actually made it possible for activists to take risks because there were people who would have their backs if and when they got sick, because many of the activists were in fact uh, HIV positive or had AIDS. So it was like all this kind of background work created the conditions in which this um, more militant AIDS activism can flourish. And if you think about in other contexts like disruption, we talked about strikes earlier, the existence of a strike fund can be really critical. Or you think about the movement for black lives and millions of people on the streets, the existence of bail funds were really, really important. So collective care is, is a fundamental element of building solidarity, the extent to which people feel like they are um, supported, the level of strength of bonds of the group, it can be a pivotal, pivotal piece to building um, a strong and resilient movement. And in a time like we're in now, where there's kind of crisis after crisis, like climate catastrophe after climate catastrophe, the existence of these kind of networks can be a, a huge on-ramp to politicization for people who might not otherwise get involved in social action at all. And there's, there's I think, a good argument to be made that there was also a, a longer legacy 
of that activism um, that goes beyond just people with HIV and AIDS. I, uh, you know, folks may know that one of the earliest locations for the outbreak of the coronavirus pandemic in the United States was the Pacific Northwest. And when you look at rates of infection across the U.S., San Francisco, right, very much at that epicenter, wound up having very low rates of illness and death. And there are an awful lot of people who know more about us than I do, who have attributed that to the fact that as I and, and some others, I mean, if New York is a gay man in 1983, it's like, this ain't my first pandemic, right? <laughs> We've done this before. And that a lot of folks, when they built the networks, they built the community health centers, they built the institutions, and that was then available to serve the much broader population. Does that strike you as, as a fair way to think about the legacy? It really, the, the AIDS movement really remade the public health system in America. And, you know, it changed the relationship that people who have illness had to the whole medical establishment. So the idea that, for example, people who are sick ought to have some role in determining how treatments are developed and piloted, um, that the bureaucracy should be attending to their needs for care and support. All of that kind of broke through as a revolution. The women's health movement had done a lot of work as well in this arena, and the AIDS movement kind of reinforced some of those critical, critical lessons. So the care that that gave people the confidence to have a different understanding of what was happening to them, like, okay, it's not just about me and, and something I did wrong. And I think people forget in queer communities how deeply shame gets inculcated by broader society into people. So the initial response, even if people didn't verbalize it, might have been, oh, were we wrong to have you know, been openly living as who we are at some deep level? But being with people who are being discriminated against, treated badly, and not getting the healthcare support they needed and deserved really radicalized thousands and thousands of volunteers in the AIDS crisis. And those people became um, really the army that helped to change the consciousness of the country. Yeah. Um, and going back to the pandemic, the very way in which the NIH functioned. Right? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Um, so, Stephanie, let's bounce back to you. Do you want to talk to us about either, uh, you want to talk about electoral strategies or inside-out strategies or both of them together since they are uh, related? Yeah, sure, they are related. Um, well, maybe I'll just say the electoral strategy is one again, that's pretty uh, obvious to people when they think about how to make change. But what we're arguing is it's usually done poorly. It's usually yep. done focused around a candidate, uh, around raising a lot of money to get someone elected and then not much thought about what happens afterwards. Um, a very short term thinking election cycle to election cycle and get out the vote of likely voters. Um, and what we write about in the book are organizations that are working to really change that um, that formula and look at electoral work in a different way, which is about building long-term power to achieve governing power, to really think about uh, not just do I get this so-and-so elected, but how do we get a block of people uh, with a shared program and a shared set of values in office that can think about running their uh, society. Um, we profile groups like the Working Families Party, uh, a group called Lucha in Arizona, a group called California Calls, and a, a number of these organizations, what they're doing is they're combining uh, what we say is base building work, really talking to people about um, their issues year round, that they're treating them as more than just a vote, but they're actually people with issues. They're working on policy issues that matter to people year round and how to implement those policies. 
and they are um, really building an independent base outside of the existing political parties so that they can carry out some of these some of these objectives um, and really get serious about um, getting state power. Um, and so that's electoral shift. Um, we can say a bit more about that, but just to get into inside outside is the idea of, okay, once you get some elected officials in power that are friendly to you, you if you don't have enough to actually set the governing agenda, how can you work with them, with these independent organizations to pass key policy? Um, these are examples of things like passing uh, increased minimum wage. We read about the Fight for 15 campaign in Chicago, although that happened in many places, um, passing immigration reform or healthcare reform. How do you work with independent social movement organizations and unions and activists on the outside who have the ability to engage in protest and lobbying um, disruption if needed, um, in alliance with sympathetic legislators on the inside who are approaching the challenge as an organizing project of their own. Their, their task is to get a majority of legislators on board to pass that policy as well. Um, and so the inside-outside strategy is working from both ends here around a shared goal of passing progressive legislation that will benefit the community and ideally include what we call policy feedback loops or, you know, what political scientists talk about as policy feedback loops, is it's not just the immediate policy itself, but how can it build power of the organizations in the long term so that you can pass even stronger policies the next time around, or you can shift people's sense of the power of government and collective good, um, or you can weaken your opponent um, in th those policies as well. So those yeah. are those strategies. Yeah, political scientists will will tell you that politics creates policy, but also that policy creates its own politics. And if you're strategic about structuring things in the right way, you can sort of bake in greater opportunities for political strength down the road. Right. Easier said than done. But my, um, so as we work our way toward toward concluding this conversation, Deepak, I wonder if um, and so and toward the end of the book, you talk about the need for strategy hubs along with sort of, of uh, uh, understanding, right, broad, uh, the communicating broader understanding of why it is that underdogs succeed and, and creating institutions that make available that kind of knowledge to folks. Can you talk a little bit about, about what that uh, looks like if you see it happening in places or what it can and should look like in your estimation? Yeah, so it's a fascinating thing. You know, Stephanie and I did a ton of research for the book. And one thing we discovered is that most strategy manuals are written for oppressors, what we call overdogs in the book. So, you know, Machiavelli's the prince, the whole mm -hmm. realm of military strategy, all of the business school literature, there's a vast um, apparatus that trains people with a lot of power to keep power or to get more power. There is a far smaller written down um, corpus and far fewer institutions that train people in strategy who are trying to change those systems from the bottom up. Um, and it turns out, though, that there are lineages, as we call them, hundreds of years old, of practitioners who have passed down some key ideas, for example, about disruption and how to stop unjust systems for, from operating, but have passed them down often orally. Sometimes some things are in writing. Um, and so part of what we're arguing in the book is that we need to make these lineages of social change, these traditions available to many, many more people, to thousands and thousands more people. 
Um, and that will require kind of a common language about what these traditions are. It'll require giving people exposure to traditions that they may not currently be working in to be able to think, hey, you know, this base building thing needs to be supplemented with collective care or with a momentum style approach or with electoral politics. If we do those things together, maybe we can achieve the goal that that any one of the, the strategies by themselves for the scale of problem we face in society is not going to work. We also take the point of view in the book that strategists, great strategists, are made, not born. And this is a really countercultural idea because we usually get the picture of um, a strategist as being a CEO who is often an, a white man who comes up with an idea all by themselves, and um, then the world changes. Now, of course, this is when you say it that way, it's laughable, but that is actually the dominant society's view. And our view is great strategy in general, but for social change especially, is best developed by groups, by diverse groups that are able to argue, debate, struggle with each other, bring different talents to bear, and that people can be trained to be better strategists. Um, so the book is a bit of a roadmap to do that. And then, you know, finally, we talk about the idea that strategists tend to, that, that social movements, organizations tend to be a bit siloed. So you have unions over here developing their strategies, groups working on reproductive justice over there or climate over here, and in these different traditions, very separate from each other. So we raise the idea of strategy hubs, groups of of leading practitioners across these different traditions were able to come together and um, figure out how do they and we work better with each other to change the world. Stephanie, can I give you the last word? Is there any any thought that you would like to leave folks with? Well, we just uh, wanted, you know, this book came out of teaching a class to organizers who uh, really um, don't get the space in their day-to-day -day work to think big ideas and think with each other. And uh, we, we see firsthand what people can do, the creative ideas and um, excitement and, and innovation that comes when you make the space and the time. And just as organizations, you know, often will devote a full time person to uh, do the accounting, we think, you know, people should put more time into developing strategy and thinking big and thinking long term. And it's not just you know, the technicalities of strategy, but it's really also the excitement of thinking of a different world, having a vision of the world as it could be. Um, and that can really motivate people to stick with the struggle for the long term. You are listening to the Public Policy Channel of the New Books Network, and we have been speaking today with Stephanie Luce and Deepak Bhargava, who are the authors of Practical Radicals, Seven Strategies to Change the World from the New Press. Uh, Deepak, Stephanie, thank you so much for joining us today. Much appreciated. Thank That's you great. so much.